You're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Next week, the state is expected to announce the award of two separate contracts, one to market tourism and one to manage it. Governor Josh Green is expected to set aside some $70 million to fund the winning bids. This week, we're exploring the need to be smarter about tourism. Lawmakers were on the verge of replacing the Hawaii Tourism Authority with a state office, but instead cut its budget. Today, we hear from Paul Brubaker with TZ Economics. He co-authored a position paper on tourism governance with fellow economist James Mack and tourism consultant Frank Haas. There's a tension right now in Hawaii's political economy between shrinking tourism outright and continuing to allow it to expand. And I use the word allow specifically because it's largely been disallowed to expand, you know, de facto, if not de jure, but increasingly de jure, for example, by banning short-term rentals. It's essentially not been allowed to expand beyond the 80,000, you know, overnight rental unit inventory. If you put everything together in hotels and whatnot, basically had the same inventory for 30 years. And then people are surprised that tourism, as a generator of export receipts for the economy as a whole, hasn't produced any more than it did 30 years ago. And there's a lot of you know talk about getting into the weeds and changing the mix of visitors. But 30 years of that conversation gets a little old, too. So this tension between shrinking tourism, absolutely, which in some quarters has been embraced explicitly, like in the Oahu Destination Management Action Plan. And the failure of anybody to really step up, I mean, outside of me, as far as I can tell, that says, why wouldn't we have 15 million visitors if we could manage the thing properly? Somewhere in there, we're missing the point that you can't do destination management properly with the existing revenue stream associated with tourism without taking money away from something else. Because all the money is spent now, right? And tourism gets the 10 million visitors, it kind of maxes out. I mean, if you do the, the math for how long mainland people stay, how long East Asian travelers and Japanese in particular stay, and you get that mixed back to something you might want to call normal, I don't even know what that is anymore, but then all the rooms are full, so then you're kind of done. And so you'll get 15 to 20 billion a year in tourism receipts, you know, something in that neighborhood, and there you are, just like you were 30 years ago when we got 15 to 20 billion in in tourism revenue after you adjust for inflation. And so if you can't grow the industry, then everything you want to achieve in terms of better stewardship for the natural resource endowment or for the cultural endowment, better efficiency with respect to transportation management and congestion mitigation, all those things have to be achieved by working within the same budget constraint that the states face for all time up till now or for the last 30 years. There's no more new money coming from tourism. So I'm surprised the fact that the conversation about governance and destination management has been sort of divorced from this basic fact. There is no more money. Even with all cylinders firing, tourism hasn't produced any more money in the last five years and the best of the last five years. Obviously, we've had the worst within the last five years of the last 30 years, but in the best years of the the pre-pandemic decade, tourism didn't generate any more than it did 30 years previous, you know, to those high points of the last decade. So we're kind of stuck. And that's another reason why destination managerial or management efficiency, getting people on the same page, getting coordination, cooperation, doing more with the same resources, that's why it's so important because there are no more resources. There are no more fiscal resources. You can't spend $250,000 on a study about tourism governance unless it comes from the 250000 that would have been spent on something else. And I don't know why people can't figure that out, but the economy's not growing. And tourism hasn't grown in 30 years, and the economy hasn't grown in five years, the Hawaii economy. So you'd like to see the administration take a bolder role in wrangling well, I, this? That's for sure. I, it's going to take more than that, but for starters, right? I'm, one of the things that's missing here is leadership. Like, why are Frank and Jim and I writing You Hero blog posts about this? That's it. We go have conversations with the governor's peeps once in a while, and that's kind of it. HTA goes through its motions trying to capture the flavor, the spirit of what, you know, people are suggesting could be done differently, but then their budget's cut. So I'm not seeing the connection. We're at a point in time where there's lots of discussion about the debt, the national debt. I mean, we're talking tourism, but if you talk about economy, you know, there were reports that were saying that Hawaii could be one of the states whose economies 
could be hurt by this because you rely so much on the military. You know, so if the military's leg is weakened, you know, tourism is already weakened a bit. Yeah, but we're we're way out on the speculative limb here. I mean, I don't even know what the numbers are, right? The debt ceiling has been raised 65 out of the last 68 times or something. It's like ridiculous. They raise it all the time. Once every decade, a couple of Republicans make a big deal about it. You're not too concerned. Well, no, I'm concerned because there's a bunch of idiot Republicans that are holding the global financial system hostage, just like they did in 2011. So, but we know how that one eventually was resolved. I'm increasingly persuaded by the view, by the letter of the 14th Amendment that says that, hey, Congress passed laws that said you had to spend this money, so go raise the money. This, I mean, that's that's my interpretation, but I, I understand that it's a controversial one. I'd be down with putting it to the test, but that's not a short-term solution. The Biden administration, Dan Yellen, has indicated that, well, going to the Supreme Court is not a option. We've got to figure this out in the next couple of weeks. My snappy comeback would be just do it. What are they going to do? Send the constitutional police after you? What are you looking at as, just as far as all these outside well, pressures? I'm not looking at the breakdown of the military industrial complex in Hawaii, if that's where your question is. Well, I mean, as it relates to tourism, right? I mean, the the economic outlook. Bring it back to the core problem we face in Hawaii is that our principal export, tourism, isn't being allowed to grow. The physical capacity to handle tourism hasn't changed materially in 30 years. And on the margins on which capacity is changing, which is basically the vacation rental space, it's being throttled. And we have lots of cooperation from air carriers and whatnot that are willing to add lift, but we haven't figured out how to solve the problem of destination management, which might create an opportunity to grow tourism and therefore have additional revenues and the economic growth that comes with that. But if you if you thwart the growth of the principal export, and let's face it, the number two export, which is the military in Hawaii, that's not gonna change. It hasn't changed, you know, in, 20, 30 years, got lightly larger during the adventures in Afghanistan and Iraq for 20 years, and then it subsided when those adventures were completed, and nobody has an appetite for that kind of adventurism, I don't imagine. So both of those components of the economy, which together are maybe a quarter of value added in Hawaii, are engines that aren't allowed, aren't likely to grow in the near term. And the fact is that the economy in Hawaii has been shrinking for five years. It was shrinking before the pandemic. After the recovery from the pandemic, it continued to shrink. From the moment of recovery in, say, late 2021 to the end of 2022, the Hawaii economy got smaller. So we've got real problems in Hawaii, not just in terms of getting customary engines of economic growth and opportunity to actually generate growth. We've got deeper problems elsewhere in the economy, wherein for five years, they evidently haven't been making a contribution. The economy today in Hawaii, as we approach the middle of 2023, is smaller than it was five or six years ago. I have to say, I'm really surprised at the way, let's say, a legislative session can come and go and people talking about all this, you know, how there's a fiscal surplus and all this other stuff without recognizing that the total output of the state is lower than it was before the pandemic and was falling before the pandemic. It's not just because of the pandemic from which Hawaii did have recovery. It's that the, the shrinking continued even after the pandemic recovery was largely complete. If you want to understand why people are leaving Hawaii and what kind of economic opportunity you know, confronts, let's say, high school and college graduates over the remainder of the decade, that should be a, a concern in terms of dollars a decade ago. Hawaii was an $80 billion economy in the middle of 2018. And in the middle of 2022, it was about a $76 billion economy. So it shrunk, what is that, four out of 85%, right? We lost sort of 5%. We're a pretty good example of how a destination can measure tourism activity, can build a network within the private sector and through public agencies and public support for collective destination marketing activities. So it's not that there's that we don't know how to do anything. We can build on a lot of the characteristics that have you know emerged from the old visitors bureau membership model to the more recent tourism authority framework and so what i think what we've been talking about is essentially moving on you know to a higher level to a governance model that goes beyond the port authority in new york mm -hmm. so to speak you know and gets all the way up into the highest levels of a state governance in a manner that knits together disparate 
kinds of activities that the question mark really is a debit, as we like to say with the silent T at the end. You know, there's sort of a think where you know where does tourism live in the state government and in in the cabinet? It's in debit. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. We're really talking about building on a foundation that partially in place, but maybe lacks focus about a governance principle that the coordination, you know, the whole government coordination and cooperation that okay. isn't obviously part of the corporate culture now, but could be, and not just in tourism. That was economist Paul Brubaker talking about a new governance model uh, for tourism here in Hawaii. We do have a request out to talk to Jimmy Tokioka, the acting head of the Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism. The veteran lawmaker has stepped in to lead the agency after lawmakers rejected the governor's nominee. At last week's special HTA meeting, the board did begin a conversation about studying how other destinations are managing over tourism. tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii of Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavaiti. In today's Backyard Quiz, we head to Liahi, the diamond head end of Kapi'olani Regional Park, just past Waikiki's Natatorium War Memorial. Nestled among the 300-acre park is a circular memorial fountain built in the late 1960s, donated in memory of Louise Gaylord Dillingham, who had served on the Department of Parks and Recreation Board for over three decades, from 1931 until 1964. Construction costs were raised by a private foundation with a price tag of over $60,000. This well-recognized fixture at Kapi'olani Park has been seen in the backdrop of television shows such as the original Hawaii Five-O and more often in tourist photos. After sitting idle and in disrepair for many years, the Dillingham Fountain was given a facelift in 2020 with the installation of new pumps, light fixtures, and plumbing. For today's quiz, can you name the architect behind this Waikiki water feature? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nairithawaii.com. Hawaiian Airlines says inter island operations are back on track after two days of significant flight delays impacting thousands of passengers this past weekend. The delay started after its internet provider, DR Fortress, experienced an outage after problems arose during system maintenance. The outage also affected other large local businesses like Bank of Hawaii and the Queens Medical Center. Uh, this weekend's delays came after the airline also experienced problems in April due to a glitch in a system upgrade. The Conversations Russell Subiano talked with Hawaiian Airlines Chief Operating Officer John Snook about what the airline is doing to rebuild trust with customers. We're uh, operating a, a normal airline today, um, so pretty much all the residual effects of Friday's outage have been resolved at this point in time. Okay, so flights are back on time, on regular time schedule. That's correct. Back on a regular time schedule again. Okay. And all the delays that did happen, are all those passengers, have they got to their destination? We've done our best to reaccommodate everybody that wanted to be reaccommodated. I think some people may have chosen not to travel if there was an appointment they missed, but we've, uh, um, I think, been able to accommodate everybody's interests at this point. 
Is there a reasonable expectation that the server issues are solved for the long term? Well, it's, it was a, a, I think, a very unusual circumstance for a, a company like DR Fortress to have a power outage and lose both their primary and backup power. They're in the business of, of ensuring that uh, servers stay up and that uh, they stay up 100% of the time. So very, very strange that they would have had a, a glitch like that that impacted so many businesses in Hawaii. And I know these these types of things happen to everyone from the small business to large corporations. And when these kinds of outages do happen, it kind of really illustrates how much we depend on the Internet and our computer systems in the modern day. Does Hawaiian Airlines, have they identified ways or started to identify ways to address these kinds of delays more quickly? Should something like this happen again? Is there a backup or a redundancy plan in the works? Well, we, we have multiple backups and redundancies. The reality, unfortunately, though, is when systems go down in an uncommanded way, when we bring them up, we have to validate that all the data is accurate and correct. In our business, we can't launch a plane without knowing that the maintenance has been done, that the crews are legal, that it's safe to fly. And so I think we have an a unusual level of safety assurance in our industry that requires us to take time. And, and so that's, that's what happened on Friday. And it's, we obviously regret very much that we disrupted people's travel plans. Um, but we want to be sure we do, it, do, do this safely. And that's what we did. Yeah, I got that sense because I, I was on the Big Island on Friday. And I was supposed yeah. to take that last flight out back to Oahu. And my flight ultimately was canceled and, and rescheduled for Saturday. And so yeah. I kind of took my time. I got to the airport early. You know, I kind of just wanted to get a sense of, of how people were feeling, how things were going. And I ended up on a flight that got delayed until two because of a, a low front tire. So they had to fix that, which was good. I mean, you know, better to be safe than sorry. Sure. So, so that delayed it a little bit. And then I was on the plane. We boarded, but we didn't take off for another two hours. So we were on the plane for, for two hours waiting for clearance. It seemed like there was a lot of other things that needed to be checked and double checked, which I certainly can appreciate that. But one thing that I kind of did hear from other passengers on the plane and around the uh, airport is how there seemed to be a lack of communication from the airline. Is that something the airline is looking to address and improve in the future? So we can always do better communicating with our guests about any disruption that um, uh, that we uh, incur and that they incur as, as a result of our airline um, uh, operating our schedule. So we can absolutely improve that. And uh, again, we're, we, we are really sorry that we impacted people's travel on such an important weekend, right? It was Mother's Day, it was graduation. And so uh, we know we can do better. And we have historically run a very dependable airline. And so it's uh, it's frustrating to us and to our guests that we didn't do that this weekend. And so we've, we've got to get back to running the best airline again. And, and I know we can. I do want to let you know that that your staff handled it very gracefully. You know, there were a lot of, you know, very, very irritated people, but they were all accommodating. You know, they did their best to make sure that information was available. You know, they rebooked people as they could. They provided information as they could. I don't think I saw anybody lose their cool. I don't think I saw anybody be rude or anything. I, I feel like everybody was apologetic and everybody tried to accommodate as much as possible. So, you know, hats off to the to the staff at Kona Airport. I certainly saw a whole that's staff. Really, that's really kind of you to say, Russell. I mean, I, I think our people did a remarkable job under the circumstances and uh, uh, they, they certainly have a big vote of thanks from me and, and the rest of the team here at headquarters. And I know the delays this past weekend were one situation. I know that at the end of April, there were some other delays. I happened to be flying to the Big Island and, and ran into some delays at that time again. When you're looking at the series of delays that have happened recently, what does Hawaiian Airlines plan to do to address customer frustrations and earn back customer trust? So we, as you know, I think have run a very dependable airline for many, many years. We've been the most reliable airline in, in the United States. And so uh, we we need to get back to doing that again. Um, there are a few things that are uh, still impacting us, like the runway construction in Honolulu that will conclude here 
two weeks from now. Uh, once we get that behind us, we'll get back to running the very most dependable airline uh, in the U.S. industry and, uh, and try and earn back our, our guests' trust again because we understand that that trust has been shaken uh, over these last couple of months. As part of that trust or earning back that trust, does the airline plan to reimburse customers for things like hotel rooms or rental cars or rebooking fees or anything like that? So uh, I think each each guest has had a slightly different experience and slightly different needs. And so we are uh, absolutely doing our best to make it right for each guest, depending upon what it was they, they wanted to uh, do and what we were able to deliver for them on the day. And so... Uh, we're absolutely trying to make it right in whichever way best fits each guest. And those are really all the questions that I had, John. I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else about the situation uh, this past weekend or, or moving forward that you want the public to know? Just that we're, we're very sorry that we disrupted anybody's uh, weekend travel. Uh, again, we know what an important weekend that was for people. And so we're going to do our very best to restore people's faith in our services and welcome them back on board again. That was Hawaiian Airlines COO John Snook talking with HPR's Russell Saviano about the recent flight disruptions. And we should note that Hawaiian Airlines is an HPR unrider. Civil Beat has a story about the latest statistics available uh, about the use of police force at the Honolulu Police Department. Editor Chad Blair is here to talk about it. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Filling in for uh, Jack Truesdale today. He has another assignment, but happy to share the what he discovered from this report, which, by the way, comes from a couple of sociologists at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And in short, it, it is saying that use of force incidents involving HPD, the Honolulu Police Department, have tripled over the past decade, which is alarming enough. Uh, but it also might be because the police themselves are actually doing a better job uh, reporting these incidents. So, you know, we, we can't quite determine whether it's simply more use of force uh, in the air or whether things have gotten better. Think about it, social media all those uh, reports that traveled all over the internet whenever there was a police shooting on the mainland, and including here, there is much more awareness when police were involved uh, using force. Right, and the department wants to be more transparent, so yeah, maybe doing a better job of actually keeping track of those numbers. Right, and by the way, Joe Logan, the, the HBD chief, is expected to talk about this report and, and their own uh, their own information. At tomorrow's police commission meeting, Doug Chin, the police commission chair, has said, you know, it's important to have accurate data if we're going to hold HPD accountable. So what do we mean by use of force? Well, we're talking about things like using uh, spray chemical agents, um, kicking or punching someone, putting them in a headlock, deploying a dog, um, using a taser, even unholstering a gun. Even if you don't fire it, those are all examples. Those incidents, according to this report, um, have increased significantly since just the prior year. So this is 2001 versus 2000, 2021 rather versus 2022. 6,000 incidents total in 2022. And that number itself uh, nearly triple what it was back in 2021. So you know what, I'm going to get my data correct there. That's 2011, I think. I'm getting my numbers mixed up with all the zeros. Let's just say the past decade. How's that sound? Okay. And then now Jack's story did also look at uh, the use of, of some of this force, I guess, uh, responding to mental health calls. Well, that is, in fact, what the headline is. And, and he singled out that statistic. A good many of these incidents when the, the police are called are, in fact, dealing with people who have, have serious mental illnesses. And this is a, a very serious problem. About 70 percent of all those cases in, involving the mental mentally ill, you know, advocates um, for mental ill um, help have said that, you know, maybe maybe it shouldn't be the police that are so involved with this because someone who's mentally ill and the police show up, that may lead to a situation that is unfortunate. HPD, by the way, says it does focus on trying to 
de-escalate situations, to have crisis intervention training for their officers so that when they do have to respond to these calls, uh, they don't necessarily have to always resort to force. Of course, each situation is different, uh, but that was one of the main takeaways Jack got from the data. Yes, and then uh, the story also looks at the racial breakdowns, right, of, of who is yeah, the victim of some of this force. Right, and, and it, it, it suggests some significant racial disparities. It's Micronesians in particular overrepresented in use of force cases involving HPD. When I say overrepresented, meaning their overall population numbers, uh, blacks and Samoans are next on that list in terms of overrepresentation. Uh, the least likely groups are, are Japanese and Chinese, and then to a lesser extent, uh, Filipinos, Native Hawaiians, and, and whites. But there's there are caveats. How do you identify Pacific Islander, Islanders and so forth? But that is a concern, uh, whether uh, racial disparities um, are a factor in these use, uh, well, frankly, racism would be <laughs> what is being raised here. But the study doesn't go too much into detail about any strong conclusions, simply reporting the race of the people involved. But that's yeah, that's got some people concerned. Yeah, but it would be interesting to see what uh, the chief's take is on this uh, and, and what we can do, you know, to react better. Right, exactly. And, and again, should the police really have to deal with homelessness, people who want substance abuse? Are they the best people? Well, often people say, call the cops, right? And mm -hmm. they're, they are the ones that, everyone, that have to intervene in some fashion. Maybe that needs to be changed. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Jack Truesdale's story online at civilbeat.org. Distribuindo sonhos, os carinhos que você me prometeu. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. When you walk through a museum, do you ever wonder how all the artifacts and artwork got there? They were stolen. They were taken through brutal armed conflict and colonialism. So should museums give it all back? If you possess or control valuable artifacts, you have a form of power. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for HPR comes from the Maui Classical Music Festival, presenting a community concert open to the public 6 p.m. May 17th at Wananalua Congregational Church in Hana. Program details at MauiClassicalMusicFestival.org. of green sea turtles in Kailua using tissue dating back 10 years ago found traces of lead in their blood and shells. Katie Shaw is a researcher with NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology based at Hawaii Pacific University's Oceanic Institute. Her recently published findings caught her eye. There have been news headlines about elevated levels of lead in the blood of city parks workers at the Cocoa Head firing range as well as concerns about a, a marine firing range at Pu'uloa on the west side of Oahu. Here's Shaw talking, talking about her research. We were looking at metals in sea turtles and originally we were looking at metals in captive versus wild uh, Hawaiian sea turtles just to see if there's any difference in kind of like the foods they're eating or what may be affecting the captive turtles. But as we were doing this, we were looking at uh, some turtles from Kailua Bay as well as Kapoho Bay on the Big Island that's now been filled in with lava since one of the last big eruptions. And we noticed that Kailua Bay turtles had much higher lead concentrations in their blood than the Kapoho Bay turtles. And that kind of sparked this like, why is that? And so we decided to delve further, further into this. So another chapter of my dissertation was looking at blood lead levels in Kailua Bay turtles. And so as we did research and like kind of dug into it, we found out that there was a skeet shooting range 
on uh, the Caimelino Bay neighborhood, kind of that beach area, and it was a skeet shooting range for about 30 years. And so during that time, skeet shooting uses lead shot. It's when they you know, shoot at those flying disc things that go through the air. But a lot of lead shot was deposited on the beach and in kind of that tide pool area. And then later it was paved over and houses were built on it. But so it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, though residents there, you know, you can walk the beach and still see little piles of lead shot um, in the tide pools today, which I was very surprised when I saw it. So describe to our listeners then for folks who frequent Kailua Beach exactly where this area is. It's not really like Kailua Beach. Like I go to Kailua Beach every day. You know, I live in Kailua. So it's it's not really what you think of as Kailua Beach. It's kind of um, around the bay and off to the side, a little bit more north. It's called, and excuse me if I say this wrong, Kaimalino Beach. And so that's where this area is, where we've seen this lead shot. But so uh, NIST has a biorepository. So it is a place where we have stored blood and scoot and other tissues from sea turtles over the last 10 years. With the idea that, you know, someday researchers might think, oh, well, was this contaminant in the area this whole time or is it new? So as a PhD student, I was able to use some of these blood and scoot, the shell samples from turtles in this Kailua Bay area to say, was this lead? Like, is this a problem? Like, where where is it coming from? And so I was able to take blood samples and scoot samples from these turtles and analyze them for lead, arsenic, and a few other metals, but lead being the main one of concern since this skeet shooting range is, you know, was right there. And so we did find elevated levels of lead in the blood of these turtles, which, you know, at first glance, it's, oh my gosh, that's so bad. But it's, the levels weren't so, so high that they're causing acute poisoning, right? These turtles are still living and foraging in this area. So it's it's not instant death sentence for the turtles. I don't want to have people panicking because this is not like that. It is something though to be aware of and concerned about because these turtles have elevated blood lead concentrations compared to other places in Hawaii and other places around the world. But we definitely do not win the blood lead concentration contest around the world. I know of three other populations that have higher blood lead concentrations. So I think Kailua Bay turtles is something we need to be aware of and kind of keep an eye on, you know, are these turtles going to have increasing trends of blood of lead in their blood or are fish maybe that are in the area, you know, that people eat. I think these are things that we need to be aware of, but not panic. Right. So yes. you don't want to be an alarmist. But, no, you know, no alarmist, but it's something to be aware of. And yes. like you said, you know, there are other sources of lead besides just this one uh, old skeet shooting range. There's military bases around that most likely have lead shot going to the water. There's still, you know, remnants of lead gasoline that we can find in the environment. So there's there's always a lot of sources of lead and there's no good concentration of lead. Any amount of lead is toxic, but it's, it's something we need to be aware of and keep an eye on. And then the Three other places that you said have mm-hmm. higher levels, where are those? So one of them is in Oman, one in Turkey, and one in San Diego Bay, actually. So a really nice research study from San Diego Bay, they found much higher concentrations of lead in the blood of those turtles. Most likely from, you know, lead, like the area of San Diego Bay has a lot of industry around it, uh, most likely from, you know, emissions from gas back in the days, all of these things kind of converge in San Diego Bay. And a lot of turtles live in that area because of the warm waters. So they had much higher concentrations than our turtles in Kailua. And so, you know, I recall just seeing turtles bop their heads up, you know, when you're out there windsurfing yeah. or you're out swimming, you, you know, you bump mm-hmm. into an occasional one. It is then just important to know that what is in our environment is getting into what do you call it, the food chain? It is, and that's not, it can't be good, right? Lead of any amount is not good. We know this. And we were able to chase some of the lead kind of into the algae that the sea turtles are eating. It's in the sediment. So we, we have seen kind of this a little bit through the food chain, like you said, of Kailua Bay. So we need to be aware that there is lead in this area and potential remediation efforts may be needed in the future. It's definitely kind of eye-opening, just something we need to think about. And so you say that residents can actually still walk the beach and find remnants? Yes, that's correct. So I have walked those beaches a couple times, and you look closely in the tide pool areas and some areas of sand, you can see lead shot. It looks like little balls, and they're kind of corroded because lead will start to break down in the environment. So it kind of gets this crust over it, and then parts of lead 
will start to leach out into the surrounding area. And yep, you can still see them today. They've done a couple of remediation efforts over the years in this neighborhood. But the problem is because there's so much lead shot deposited, every time there's a storm, residents will say they see kind of more of it um, wash out from underneath that topsoil underneath the houses and be able to see more lead shot. Well, I just wonder too about the limu because, you know, we've just celebrated the year of the limu and there's, you know, lots of focus on if you bring back the limu, you bring back the fish and the turtles Mm -hmm. and, you know, people do eat limu. So you kind of have to wonder, are we ingesting maybe some of that? For sure. Yeah, it's definitely a concern, I would say, you know, for a lot of toxins, not just metals, but for organic contaminants as well. Because unfortunately, as people, we have deposited a lot of this stuff in our environment. So I think it's good to know that there's metals in this area, you know, maybe think twice if you're consuming things in this area. I think more testing needs to be done. The study that I did was funded by the Department of Health to help, you know, find out what's going on in the area. And I think additional studies could be warranted for metals in the limu, in the seagrasses, the algae, maybe the fish. Turtles aren't the only animals out there. So how long of a period then did you look at and how high were these levels? What can you share about that? Yep. So the turtles I was looking at, the blood was taken from these turtles around 2011 to 2013. So this was a number of years ago. And I have not looked at any samples from sea turtles more recently. So I cannot, I honestly cannot tell you if anything has changed over the last 10 years. Again, we should look at this again. You know, we should look at samples that we have and say, has this changed? Because now it's 2023. And how did that happen? But It's something we can look at. And as far as numbers, and these numbers are in parts per billion. So this is pretty small. We have an average of 320 approximately nanograms per gram of lead in the blood. So these are very low numbers. These aren't, you know, numbers that we're panicking about that are causing acute poisoning. Uh, But because these turtles are living in the area for long periods of time, Kailua Bay turtles are highly resident, so they stay in Kailua Bay for quite some time until they grow bigger and move on to a different foraging area. So kind of the chronic exposure might be more of an issue, having that exposure day in and day out to the foods that they eat. But it's not an acute, it's not like a one-time high exposure. That was Katie Shaw with the National Institute of Standards and Technology talking about her research that found trace levels of lead in endangered green sea turtles. We did ask if there was any connection with tumors that are often found on Honu. Uh, Shaw said that her findings did not reveal any definite link to the lead levels and says more research is needed. Time now for our Backyard Quiz Answer. Earlier in the show, we asked you who designed the Louise Dillingham Memorial Fountain. Tucked away at the back end of Kapi'olani Park, across the street from the Elks Club and the residential condominium, the uh, Colony Surf. The fountain is a favorite resting spot for joggers and tourists alike. The memorial was gifted to the city of Honolulu in 1967 and built at a cost of $60,000 in honor of the many years of parks development service of former City Parks board member Louise Gaylord Dillingham. She's the wife of Honolulu construction contractor Walter Dillingham, known as the Baron of Hawaii Industry. Nearly 30 years later, the fountain had fallen into disrepair, so in 1997, the city and county of Honolulu repaired it. And then in 2020, the city gave the a fountain design by architect Albert Eli Ives a second facelift, this time installing new pumps, light fixtures, and plumbing. We have no winners today. We stumped you on that one. But that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Nearly 200 businesses across the state rely on HPR underwriting to reach engaged listeners like you. Mahalo to Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau National Wildlife Refuge. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. 
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Foodland, celebrating 75 years of food, family, friends, and aloha, extending a warm mahalo to their customers. Foodland.com. Tonight at 8 p.m., the Hawaii Symphony returns to HPR 2 with guest conductor Andrew Grams and violinist Kristen Lee performing Haydn's Symphony No. 60, Fung's Violin Concerto, and Stravinsky's Pulcinella. That's 8 p.m. tonight, right after evening concert on HPR 2, your home for classical music. Sponsored by Honolulu Financial Partners. A new book, Surfing Sisterhood Hawaii, Wahine Reclaiming the Waves, is set to launch this week. It's written by Mindy Pennebacher, who covers the surf scene for the Star Advertiser. The book explores the history, challenges, and evolution of surfing from the perspective of women on waves. The conversation Stephanie Hahn talked to Pennebacher about the sport that they both love. How did you come to surf? I just started out, I had to surf. I wanted to surf all my life, but I grew up in a very protective Korean-American family. And my grandfather made me swim a mile out at sea, and he had his stopwatch before I could qualify to get my first surfboard. And I was like 13. And then I had, for, before that, I went body surfing at Makapu with some of my great classmates, some of the girls, you know, at Punahou, who were all like on the water polo and swim teams, but they took me under their wings. So I was very water-wise, but I wanted a board. Did anyone in your family surf then? No one. Like, no one in my whole family surfed except maybe for a couple of cousins in Wahiwa, but that was too far. I lived in Honolulu. So I just got adopted by this pack of boys in my neighborhood, my, my age, who I'd seen all my life. I just felt so repressed because I always had to dress conservatively, wear conservative swimsuits. But one of them was our newspaper boy. He took me under his wing. My grandfather trusted him. And so, you know, when you would see a whole bunch of boys going down to tongs or suicides, there I'd be, the one girl. Uh, one of the statistics in my book is there are 30 million surfers worldwide, according to the International Olympic Committee. Four to one is the ratio of men to women. I went out this morning, paddled out. The ratio was nine to one. I was the only female out at Suey's. It was a great day great waves. One of the things I learned when researching and writing this book that really surprised me was that in old Hawaii, women surfed as equals with men. Queens surfed, commoners surfed. It's all in the materials observed by like the first Westerners and then later on by writers like Samuel Kamakau in the 19th century. Women beat men in fun surf competitions throughout the 19th century. And it really wasn't until 19, the 1950s when the movie Gidget came out, ironically, you know, about mm -hmm. a girl who breaks the, the watery ceiling, that surfing became immensely popular and commodified. And there was as suddenly uh, money to be made in advertising. And men literally shouldered women aside. The white male Western colonial bias against women and certainly people of color played a huge part. We have to remember that Princess Kaiolani was a radical canoe surfer out at Waikiki. And she has a surfboard that's in the Bishop Museum, although we have no documentation of her actually surfing, but I'm sure she did. And she had to wear those crummy bathing dresses too. Right, right. I think. And so how did surfing shape your personal philosophy about life? How did you find your life unfold because surfing was so important to you? Surfing was, for me and for the more than 30 women I've interviewed for the book, a release from our obligations on land, and it is freedom. That's what it is to me. You just can look like a mess. Everyone does. You, know? <laughs> you just are in nature. I write in the book that I might have been a better student, you know, I might have had a better job if I hadn't always returned to surfing all my life, obsessed with surfing, but I think it's given me great mental and enduring physical health. Like just this morning, I hadn't been going out for days because I had been working on book promotion and outreach, 
And then this morning it looked so perfect, and I just went and felt completely transformed, energized, happy. It's a meditation process, right? Totally. What is something that you wish people would know about women and surfing that they do not know? We should be thinking guys who outnumber women by four to one on average. They just shouldn't judge by appearances because literally you can see a girl, a very young girl or an older woman who might be on equipment that's not as cool or expensive as the guy's tiny shortboards, but you can't assume that they don't know how to surf. I think people also ought to understand that surfing is a microcosm for the greater society known for gender bias. I mean, I've often been gaslighted by aggressive newbies at my home break. They'll go like, you know, you shouldn't be out here. You don't know how to surf. I mean, they'll just say that to me. Oh. You know, and they'll snake me. They'll steal away. Oh. They'll actually menace me paddling towards me oh my just gosh. to move me out of the way You because know, I'm an older woman. And what happens is we internalize this criticism. Right. Just as with anything else in social life, you know, when people say that we can't do this or that. You know, we can't get a certain job, we can't measure up, we can't get so much pay. Right. So I think for all girls and women, we need to realize that we have to believe in ourselves. The water where you're seeking freedom from that is also becomes a vulnerable place, too. It's extremely vulnerable. And, I mean, very competent women surfers in this book, for instance, Debbie Milliken, a recreational surfer who's been a pro says when she paddles out, if they're strange guys, she can tell by the look in their eyes, they assume she can't surf. Carissa Moore, the five-time world champion and our Olympic gold champion, has told me, you know, yeah, if she paddles out for a recreational surf even, she just feels intimidated if it's a lot of guys and just her or a few girls because they're bigger and stronger. They can paddle faster. You know, we do feel... You can't help but feel physically intimidated. We're all animals, right? We right. measure the size and we look in the eyes and we go, uh-oh. So even today in my blissful morning surf, there were some, you know, some spotty times when I felt I had to com compete with a guy for a wave. Once I showed them that I could do it, that was fine. They cheered me on. But there's always that, you know, I'm the only woman Right, you're still in a pioneering space. <laughs> exactly, over and over and over. You know, if you think about the history of surfing through your book, I came to see, wow, there are a lot more women, and there's no record of them. Well, thanks, Stephanie. I really felt we needed to talk about surfing as a recreational, fun activity that takes women out of our daily drudgery. And I started off talking with just the girls and women I surf with at Suey's, you know, the regulars. And I realized we hardly ever really talk, you know, you're just in this. <laughs> you're you in the water. Of, you're in the water, you're looking for waves, and we're very serious. So this opened up a whole world. From all of them, I learned that they don't care as much about catching 20 waves. They don't have like some minimum docket of waves. They just want to get out in the water, whether it's Elizabeth Maiden and Kailua, the founder of Surfing Moms, you know, where they babysit each other's kids on the beach. Yeah, that's awesome. Exactly. Or whether it's like Kiana Blankenfeld, who teaches surfing, and also she's like a UFC fighter. Yeah, there's women all over the island surfing. And what do you think is the nature of this sisterhood? The sisterhood is, I guess, essentially a sisterhood initially of mutual suffering and embarrassment <laughs> because right. it's just hard when you're learning and you're wearing maybe a different swimsuit. You know, like no one wants to wear those guy board shorts and then we need something on top, which always gets tangled up or falls off. And then there's just that stress with the men prejudging us. And I'm also interested in the fact that you are a surf columnist. You must be one of the only women surf columnists. There are not a lot of women writing about it, and not frequently, and not in a place where surf is a big thing. 
Yeah, well, writing about surfing has really opened up communications with other surfers in an incredible way because I used to just surf as my refuge from land, so I never would talk to anybody. I'd just sit there grumpily. <laughs> and, but since I had the column, people were reading it. Surfers were reading it. They're coming up and giving me stories and talking to me or saying, I didn't agree with that, you know, or that was good. And so it's really made me more of a social creature. It's true that I'm probably the least sporty person ever. My, <laughs> my only sport is surfing. I started off as a features columnist doing ocean lifestyles at the Honolulu Star Advertiser. And I believe that the history of competitive surfing and in the book is the only his comprehensive history of competitive surfing that's been written by a woman. One thing I've really discovered and I want everyone to know is what a great supportive network surfing is. The pro women surfers, you know, Rochelle Ballard, Kayla Cannelly, Betty DiPolito, and, you know, the younger girls who've talked to me, I mean, they're just, they're so stoked that someone's telling, a woman's telling the story. The book was supposed to go to print, like, in December, and I said, no, they, they might hold the first Eddie with women. And yeah, at the Bay, women have only competed virtually. But then they, they just got their feet under them and totally charged, as everyone saw. We have to be philosophical. Ultimately, surfing is fun. And then my motto in the book is, surfing well is the best revenge. The best revenge. That was Mindy Pennebacker, author of Surfing Sisterhood Hawaii, Wahine Reclaiming the Waves. She spoke with fellow surfer HPR Stephanie Hahn about the book that includes tips and ideas for women interested in this beloved local sport. Pennybacker will be on hand for the book launch set for 5.30 p.m. this Thursday at Chaminade University's Ching Conference Center. that does it for us today. Tomorrow, we hope to hear from Navy Admiral John Wade about the recent spills at Red Hill and the defueling progress being made at the storage facility. Share your comments or questions about what you heard today by calling our talkback line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find the conversation podcast on our website and also on Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <music>